Hi, everyone. Welcome to the CSPI podcast. I'm here with a very special guest today, uh, Steve Shu. Steve, how are you doing? I'm great. Great to be on your show. Yeah, we're glad to have you. Um, so I think a lot of uh, our um, a lot of our uh, uh, listeners probably won't be familiar with your background. Can you just uh, go into your you know a short version of your biography? What's your job and what's your background? Uh, I have a very strange background because uh, I'm originally trained in theoretical physics. Um, became a professor of theoretical physics. Uh, mainly worked in very esoteric things like. Uh, quantum information, black holes, uh, quantum field theory, uh, stuff that really very few people, you can't, you can't have too many meaningful conversations with people about those topics unless, you know, they are actually professional physicists and they actually have to be theoretical physicists, not even experimental physicists. So um, that's my main intellectual background, but uh, I'm also, I guess, kind of well-known in Silicon Valley because I've started several tech companies was involved with uh, the whole kind of startup scene back in the day. So I started my first company around, uh, I think, 2000. So that was like the first bubble. And um, so now I think I've co-founded or founded four uh, tech startups. And um, and then the other way people know me is uh, through my blog and the fact that I do research in an area called computational genomics, which can be controversial, although I think needlessly so. Yeah. So, and to, and your current job is? Oh yes, um, I was have been a professor for a long time. So, started out as an assistant professor at Yale. Then I moved to the University of Oregon. And then when I was at the University of Oregon, I was recruited to come to Michigan State to be the vice president for research. Which, again, if you're not in the cloistered academy, you don't even know what that position does or is. I can explain it, but uh, anyway, I had a pretty. It's, it's big- very important. Yeah, yeah pretty big responsibility, like uh, ultimately like $700 million a year budget in research expenditures at a Big Ten university. And so I was VPR here until summer of 2020. And since then, I've returned to being a physics professor. And I have a joint appointment between the physics department and this new department, which I helped create called the uh, Computational Math Science and Engineering, which is machine learning, AI, stuff like that. Yeah, so a very busy and and full life, um, and I actually I, I know you not even from from uh, most of those things, but I know you from uh, your excellent blog uh, called Information Processing, right? It's uh, info info proc.blogspot.com. It's still active, right? Yeah, I'm a super old school blogger because I started the blog in 2004, and so it's been 18 years of blogging. <laughs> And uh, yeah, so you can go back and look at posts where I'm like uh, warning people about the housing bubble in 2004, 2005. And I also saw that in around, uh, you know, I just happened to see this by by chance today, that in the early 2000s, you predicted uh, the continuing uh, uh, economic growth of China. Um, I have a a 20 plus year prediction going about uh, economic growth rates in China and um, what's likely to happen, the knock-on consequences for, say, U.S. national security, geopolitics. And yeah, I mean, it's kind of amazing that, um, roughly speaking, my projections going back 15, 20 years have largely been correct. And so, so now I have more projections for the future that we could talk about if, if you want to go that direction. 
Well, yes. I mean, there's so much you write about. I mean, you write about uh, you, uh, China, you write about, um, uh, you know, the startup world, you write about psychometrics, you know, uh, things, uh, you know, polygenic, uh, sort of, uh, the, the, you know, these, uh, these GWAS studies and what we can do with them, uh, fighting, you know, you've done some jujitsu. So such a, you know, it's, there's almost, it's hard to know where to begin. But since we're on the topic of China, I guess, I guess we'll start there because it's, I think it's a mutual interest of ours. Uh, so what do you, what, what kind of, uh, projections would you you see um, from here on out? Well, I, I think the, the the starting point, so I think by now, you know, even five or 10 years ago when we were kind of locked up in this phony war on terror and, you know, focused on somewhat irrelevant things happening, you know, in Afghanistan and the Middle East. And meanwhile, China was going strong, growing stronger and stronger. By now, people in who think about national security and geopolitics are pretty focused on China. So the, the idea that, okay, it's China is going to be a peer competitor. It's probably significantly less fragile than some of the war hawks in the United States would like to think. Um, it has tremendous human capital base. It has a very high functioning uh, technological and scientific research establishment. I think those are pretty well known things now. I, I think the part that I, being a Chinese American, and having grown up in an era, a very different cultural era in America, I kind of grew up in the 80s. Um, I have been anticipating this. If you sort of fast forward, you think, okay, when Japan became prominent, it was already a problem for white people, Europeans, uh, to think that, okay, this other race of people are going to compete with us on even terms and actually maybe threaten us. There was a reaction, but that reaction was a tiny fraction of the reaction that's going to happen when, for example, China becomes, say, the largest economy in the world or predominant, at least in its sphere of influence in Asia. I think that the psychological ramifications and the culture clash between a very what is still a very Eurocentric view of the world, uh, Western civilization, uh, and a confrontation with this very old civilization, which has a totally different view of itself and of history uh, than the West. I think that the the that whole frame of reference is, is still sort of underappreciated right now. Yeah. Yeah. I've had the exact same thought. I mean, Japan, I mean, it was rising, but it would never had the population um, to become the the biggest country in the world, the big, biggest economy in the world. And, you know, economic growth just sort of stopped at some point. I, I you know, I don't, the pop, they had populate, I think they had a population problem and sort of the uh, returns to that started affecting them pretty early on. Um, but, you know, Japan had, Japan had, you know, the, you know, we classify countries into, you know, two camps, democracy and non-democracy. So the fact that Japan had the, you know, something of what we think of as the American system, although obviously it's a much uh, different system, sort of in our minds, it was, you know, somehow not, not alien or somehow friendly. And we still, you know, the country, I'm too young to remember this, but I, you know, from what I read, uh, people were really freaking out about Japan in the uh, late eighties and early nineties. Yeah. So, so you're I right. think- I lived through that era where there was a famous book, I think maybe by Ezra Vogel at Harvard, Japan as number one, where where they made these crazy economic projections saying that Japan was actually this this country with, you know, half or third the population of the United States was going to be the leading economic power. And so there was a frenzy and, and there were actually things, you know, very parallel to what recently has been done to Huawei was probably done to Toshiba and other Japanese companies around that time. Um, but the thing I, I would like to uh, point your listeners to if they're interested in what my prediction is for you know what this U.S. China relationship or confrontation is going to be like. I would suggest to read a book by an MIT historian called John Dower, and the title of that book is called "War Without Mercy." 
And in that book, he studies the Pacific War in World War II in, in great detail and compares it to the war, say, between the United States and the, you know, the campaign in Western Europe uh, after Normandy, and the level of ferocity uh, and brutality when Europeans were fighting Asians was just at a totally different level uh, from both sides um, than you know what was seen, at least in Western Europe. Now, maybe between the Nazis and the, the Soviet Union, there was something obviously very ferocious going on there as well. Mm. But um, I think people don't realize... All Asians know this, I think, at a very deep level. They know that, uh, you know, the West would like to keep them down. The West is used to being on top and wants to stay on top and really would like to keep whichever civilization in Asia, East Asia is rising, would like to keep them down. And it, I think almost all Asians just appreciate, even South Asians appreciate this kind of very intuitively. Uh, but Europeans can't generally let it creep into their consciousness. Yeah. I mean, do you think that perhaps, I mean, this is one thing that I, I wonder about, you know, I agree with you on uh, the fundamentals of China being strong and it has the population and it has deep, you know, uh, societal strengths, including high, a high human capital. And so there's, you know, every, I wrote a paper called the, uh, the inevitable triumph of China uh, or something like that. I forget the exact title, but the idea that China is going to become the largest economy in the world, I think that's pretty much baked in and you would have to have some kind of black swan event for that not to be the case. Um, but but are we sort of just? I mean, is our capacity for delusion infinite? I mean, I think we we you know we might not be the same. You know, it seems like we're less connected to reality than we were when Japan was rising th- uh, thirty years ago. So, like for example, I mean, I, you shouldn't you know get your information on how Americans are thinking just from like Twitter responses. Um, but you know, I, I look at like the people who are experts in like foreign policy; they don't see much better. Like you put any you put up any um, any metric of like how well China's doing, people say, "How can you believe the Chinese?" communist party you could tell them anything you could say china has fewer covid deaths you know how do you know that um so it seems like you know we are very very able to sort of be smugly satisfied you know with with who we are compared to a country like china as much as we hate each other and we have our domestic politics i I, you know i i I see americans sort of you know with just a incredible capacity uh to just continue believing what they want to believe um you know is there anything that's going to sort of knock us out of that stupor it's possible that for the majority of Americans left to their own devices, and even the majority of academics left to their own devices, they could they could stay in that um, you know uh, blissful unreality for a long time. But you also have a whole population of people whose job is to look at tail risks and to look at threats from other countries. So this whole national security establishment now is very much engaged in ginning up a kind of anti-China narrative and really emphasizing the threats from China. And of course, it it, it dovetails nicely with their self-interest because the military industrial complex would would love to have a good enemy to point to. Mm -hmm. And they can build some wonderful systems, hypersonic weapons at a billion dollars a shot, you know. Um, So all of this, I think, is going to self-reinforce toward, I'm I'm afraid we will end up in a Cold War, even though most Americans probably don't have any strong reason to fear or despise, uh, you know, the Communist Party of China. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I think the same thing too. So yeah, that's, I mean, that's the theme of my book that basically the uh, threat perception adjusts to uh, adjust to the reality based on, you know, what can sell and what can basically, you know, keep the, uh, you know, keep things as they are and keep, you know, we keep funding the military, giving these people power, uh, giving these people a sense of self-importance. That That's my model of the world too. So, you know, they have a, they have an interest and in, an ideological and a material interest for a, a sort of ginning up, uh, you know, a lot of anti-China, a lot of anti-China stuff, but still, I, you know, I think they have a little bit harder time. You know, I, I don't think it's as easy to sell, you know, the country on a new Cold War as it used to be. So we had something, you know, we had 9-11, right? And this was just, you know, the biggest story in, in the world. So, uh, you know, 3,000 Americans die, you know, they got they got a good 10, 20 years of wars out of that, <laughs> you know. Um, and then, uh, and then like today, it seems like we're so divided. It's like, you know, if one side like becomes very anti-China, it's like the other side will be not want to be so anti-China. So you find that with Russia, like liberals really hate Russia now. Um, they blame them for Trump. And so like conservatives are a little bit, you know, they, they have a hard time getting mad at Russia. And it seems like conservatives are really going all in on China. And sometimes they go all in on China just like as a way to own own the libs. They'll say, why do they focus on Russia when, when China is the real threat? But I, I noticed like even though elite democratic, you know, the top levels of the democratic party, you know, tend to, uh, you know, tend to take a tougher line on China, their heart just doesn't seem in it. And I feel like their heart isn't in it because conservatives are so anti-China. So are we right. maybe a little bit too, you know, divided and fragmented to really do anything like a cold war without some, you know, major event like 9-11? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. So I, the dynamic you just identified, I think, is for real. Although I have heard it said by many people that the one bipartisan issue in DC is anti-China yeah. competition. I've heard um, that too, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's not clear which of those are going to win out. I, I want to say one thing, though, just to clarify what I was saying about the national security state. Um, you know, if you're in a think tank or you're a, a, a military planner, you have to look at uh, worst case scenario. So you have to look at, OK, this other country has four times our population. It might get to two times our GDP within our lifetimes. Um, they're technologically advanced. So in the worst case scenario, if they do uh, want to be mean to us, we have to really worry about that tail risk. Um, so I, I don't want to criticize those people. I think there are people who are honestly sounding the alarm that the U.S. basically stopped developing uh, weapon systems that are appropriate for peer competition, focusing more on very expensive wars of occupation and pacification in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we are actually behind the Russians and the Chinese right now in many specific areas of conventional military technology. So I think those people are doing their job. It's their job to warn about risks in the future. What's different is then when the media get into it and the New York Times and the CIA starts to manipulate public opinion about how uh, concerned we should be about China. No. That that extra step, I think, is a real problem. But, I, but I'm definitely not against people who are sounding the alarm that, hey, there's a peer competitor that we've kind of been ignoring for a while that we should at least think about. I think those people are completely right. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I agree with all that. Um, you uh, mentioned. I mean, I've I, I've read a little bit about this about the uh, sort of the Russians and the Chinese. I mean, I think a lot of people know the Chinese are you know good technologically, but as far as the Russians, um, you know, they they have um, s some developments in missile technology. That, from what I understand, some people say that they've sort of a uh, uh, sort of uh, just completely obviate uh, the uh, use of missile defense that we have in Europe. Um, do you know anything about this and whether like the the actual Russian yeah. because it could be very relevant given given current geopolitical situation. Yes. I've been following this pretty carefully because, well, I have a technical background, so I'm able to follow it somewhat carefully. And yeah. the real issue is that 
it, the technology is now mature for hypersonic weapons. So both in terms of guidance systems, sensors, and also the basic uh, aerodynamics, material science to protect the missile or the device as it's moving at a hypersonic speed through the through what could be actually a plasma that's created in the atmosphere. And then also even things like scramjets, uh, which are propulsion systems, sustained propulsion systems for things that might be moving at Mach 5 or Mach 10. The Russians have continued to develop that kind of technology. The Chinese have also developed that technology. The U.S. kind of just dropped the ball and stopped being interested in it, you know, over the last at least 20 years, I would roughly say. So we're in a situation now where the Russians and the Chinese have missile systems that my personal opinion is we do not have good defensive countermeasures against. So the moment things go hot in Europe, I think NATO headquarters, I don't think there's any way they're going to defend NATO headquarters if the Russians want to take it out with a missile, conventional missile, just completely yeah. conventional missile, they can take it out. And same thing with uh, supply and fuel uh, uh, stockpiles in Western Europe, um, the main ports by which U.S. would try to reinforce uh, Western Europe, they'll be taken out very quickly at the beginning of the war. I, I, th- I think that it's amazing the the people in the State Department or even you know the, the top political leaders in the U.S. just have no appreciation of what a pure, even conventional, even if like hypothetically, which I don't believe we could keep it from going nuclear, if it were just a purely conventional war with either pure competitor, China or Russia, the U.S. is just not prepared for you know it could be many thousands of casualties on the first day, and. That would happen even if the Russians didn't wanted to minimize casualties. Suppose they just said, we want to kill as few American soldiers as possible, but there are just a bunch of systems that we want to take out on the first day mm-hmm. when it goes hot. The U.S. public, you know, compared to 9-11, 9-11 will seem like, oh, that was a holiday or something because many yeah. more than that number of people will be killed on the first day. And um, so I, I just think people have no sense of what they're dealing with when they, you know, we don't have strategic, I don't feel we have really strategic interests in Ukraine. So why are we push, you know, why are we poking this huge bear yeah. that could just swipe us with the paw and maul our entire face? Yeah. You know, why, why would we do that? It's just ridiculous. Yeah. So, I mean, I just, I should say for our audience, we're recording this on February 1st, 2022. So by the time this room, this is released, you know, ch- the situation in Eastern Europe, you know, might've changed everything we talk about might've already <laughs> come to fruition. So just, uh, just letting people know, uh, know that. So, yeah, I mean, so the situation in Eastern Europe back, uh, from the cold war, the theory was basically you weren't going to match the Russians man to man. They always had the manpower. They had the ground troops, um, and they had the tanks, right. And we put basically the troops in West Germany as a sort of tripwire. So the U.S. would be involved. What the U.S. had was nuclear weapons. Russia had nuclear weapons too. But the fact that the U.S. had a lot of nuclear weapons was sort of the equalizer. So what you're telling me is uh, Russia still has basically the manpower advantage in, in uh, Europe. It, it also has um, an overwhelming uh, uh, advantage in the air through its missile systems. And, you know, the nu- uh, nuclear weapons, I think Russia has, has slightly more. The U.S. has slightly more. We hope, we hope it doesn't get to that, right? Like, we hope it doesn't get to that. But basically, everything short of nuclear weapons, Russia has an overwhelming advantage. You know, you add, add the energy control, you know, supply control over, over Europe, too. Um, and so it's really, I mean, the way we talk about this in, in uh, like, the media and in the discourse, you know, the, that understanding seems not to be there. I mean, it, it really seems like we are overestimating, you know, the U.S. leverage Absolutely. I mean, just a minor correction for the military nerds out there. I think the one place where the U.S. still has um, pretty strong advantage over the Russians is in air power. So if our planes get in the air, uh, in air-to-air combat 
between our fighters and their fighters, we have a significant advantage. But it won't go that way because with missiles, what they'll do is they'll try to take out our air bases right away and yeah. stockpiles and things. And so it, there won't be there won't be the kind of air dominance that we had in Iraq or or other recent wars, even though we do have better planes than mm-hmm. they do. Um, now, in terms of um, yeah, the balance of power in Europe, I, I just do not think we want to get. We do not want to mix it up with the Russians right now. We have a hollowed out military that was really, you know, to get promoted in the military over the last 20 years, you were doing entirely different things than preparing for a conflict with a peer competitor. And so we are not prepared in any way for it. Yeah, right. And what do you have a do you have a sense of, um, you know, the other hot, the other flashpoint sort of uh, besides Ukraine is Taiwan, maybe a more long term problem. If uh, China wanted to retake it, um, you know, conventionally through military means, uh, you know, how do you handicap that? How do you see the situation there? Well, I think there, there's a significant uncertainty about the actual landing and occupation of Taiwan. So just because of, you know, an amphibious landing, uh, you know, involving very large numbers of soldiers, obviously very challenging for anybody. I think the the things which I'm confident about are that uh, Chinese missile technologies for real, and I'm, here I'm talking about conventional weapons. So I think U.S. carriers will not be operating anywhere near Taiwan in this in the future because they're very vulnerable mm-hmm. to uh, attack by Chinese missiles. Um, the distances between Chinese bases in the first island chain and Taiwan are quite vast. And the F-35 is a very limited range plane. So the ability for the U.S. to reinforce Taiwan in event of conflict is very limited and very dangerous. So I think what, you know, as I was saying, 9-11 seems like the most traumatic event you can think of in terms of loss of human American life. But one carrier group going down and that will be it. You know, the, the president of the United States will, will have a an unbelievable political crisis on his or her hands. Um, and that would happen. Any any carrier group that gets close to Taiwan is probably going to be taken out. Yeah. yeah. Um, the other thing that which I think people who don't understand the technology fail to appreciate is that it's very easy for PRC to blockade, sea blockade Taiwan, Absolutely. even Japan yeah. and South Korea. Now, those countries get about 90% of their energy and over 50% of their calories from food imports that come by sea. Yeah. And the state, the current state of Chinese um, ballistic missiles is such that they can put, they can hide their launchers deep inside, deep uh, on the continental, in the continental China. But because of satellite targeting and all kinds of things like this, they can easily just say, look, any oil tanker we see within thousand kilometers of the coast of Taiwan or the major port Kaohsiung, we're just going to take it out and they'll take out one and then there will be no more commercial services sending oil to Taiwan. Yeah. And uh, there's no countermeasure for this because uh, other than going nuclear, there is no countermeasure for the United States to stop China from enforcing a sea blockade on any of the countries that I mentioned. So, um, uh, you know, so they have a lot of cards to play now, of course, at that point, it's just, it's just war. It's just, it's world war three, but, um, I don't think I don't see a lot of really, really realistic analyses of how this is going to play out. Yeah, I mean, yeah, people talk, well, they'll focus on one thing, they'll focus on yeah, the amphibious landing on Taiwan and how hard it is. And then I'm just looking at a map. And I'm seeing here's Taiwan, and it's just China. And then there's just the ocean. <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's like, what about that? Well, like, if you can't get food, if you can't get energy, like, I mean, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You don't need the landing, you can, you know, you can pass yeah. it on. So I, I, I am willing to say that, you know, how a actual amphibious assault on Taiwan would go is still uncertain. 
and needs to be gamed out much more seriously. And, and actually, if you if you could read Chinese, you can read all kinds of really detailed analyses yeah. of how it's going to go, both by amateurs and also by the Chinese military. And um, it's kind of amazing because we have highly paid experts in D.C. who are supposed to be thinking about these things. But I've yet to meet one who actually understands really the what the Chinese PLA is thinking, what even amateur analysts who are still pretty technical, like people with uh, backgrounds in defense technology, even these amateur analyses of how a Taiwan conflict would go are not really incorporated into thinking of our top policy people in the United States. Yeah, I mean, my view, my my view of these things is, I you know, I think you're right. I think we're just not realistic about what U.S. military power can accomplish. We're not realistic about um, how much these, uh, you know, these uh, conflicts and the backyards of China and Russia matter to us. I guess the one thing I am a little bit more optimistic about than most people, and it's like optimistic in the sense that, like, you know, I think there's like a. 10% chance, like if, you know, if China tries to take Taiwan, like I think there's like a 20% chance we go to war instead of like an 80%. So like I'm optimistic in, my, in like yeah. that sense is that I think that it's very easy for the United States to give um, security guarantees when nobody's paying attention. I mean, when US was expanding NATO, NATO um, to, uh, you know, the Baltics, you know, nobody, nobody cared. It wasn't like a, you know, there was no public discourse. There was no reaction. I, I think back to when Obama uh, said, you know, there's a red line in Syria and it was very, very easy to say there's a red line in Syria. Uh, and then there was a chemical weapons attack. And then, you know, there was a outcry in public opinion. And then basically, you know, Obama just did a, you know, did a sort of a more of a symbolic strike and really didn't do anything else. Right. So it's, you know, it, and this is like, this is like conflicts, which just these countries can't fight back. Right. Uh, so that we you know we're talking Syria, you know, Iran, like we haven't been reckless enough to actually go to war with these countries in a serious uh, way, like an invasion, like we did in Iraq or Afghanistan. You know, I think there's, you know, it's easy to sort of war game how it works out. But I think that when foreign policy, like when foreign policy becomes the main issue, um, it's more about what the president wants to do. And he's sort of looking, he's looking deep into the abyss, right? And he's got to make that decision. At that point, it's not, it's not going to be the lobbyist or, or whoever, who the biggest, loudest mouth is. It's going to drive it. He's going to be thinking about his own legacy and his own, you know, the, the future of humanity and his own politics, right? Um, and so, yeah. you know, I, I hope I hope you're right, yeah. you know, because obviously mistakes can happen. And so, you know, I agree with that whole analysis, but still the US president could make a mistake. Sure. Oh, yeah. Point, yeah. Right? yeah. So, yeah. We, oh, okay. Um, yeah. If, I mean, if China fights, you know, goes into Taiwan, you know, like a 10% chance, 20% chance of like a nuclear war is still a terrible yeah. scenario. I think a lot of people think it's like a 70% chance the US would get involved. And I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I wouldn't be as confident as those people. I think a lot would change. If you know, I, I, I think in, in the, in the kind of think tank, policy think tank conversations that I've been in, in the last couple of years, discussing this exact issue, the future of the U.S. in greater Asia, you know, the point is often made, the following point is often made. So what is the real reason that the U.S. has to defend Taiwan, right? What, you know, we don't actually have a formal treaty obligation to do it, but why do we have to do it? And the logic is something like this. Like if we give up on Taiwan, it will show all of these other existing allies in Asia that we're not serious. And if we're not serious, then the Chinese will come to dominate the region. And we can't have that. So we have to fight in Taiwan and we have to risk actually nuclear escalation and multiple aircraft carriers going down in the first you know, weeks of the war. So if you, if, you, if you agree with that analysis, then what you're basically saying is the U.S. is going to risk World War III to remain the hegemon in Asia, right? So how important is it for us to be the hegemon in Asia? Is it worth risking World War III? And you know, I, I think the U.S. president might say, "Yeah, okay, we don't have to be the hegemon in Asia. No. <laughs> we can, we can, we can let them have Taiwan." So, 
Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's what it will come to. Yeah. I mean, but, and even if, I mean, even if it, you know, it's like, it's like, even if we don't do anything, right. If, you know, if we do nothing, you know, like, okay, let's say China doesn't move on Taiwan, the, you know, the, just the sort of the, uh, uh, the trajectory of things is such that China is going to be by far the largest economy. You know, it like there's more economic integration continuing. Um, there, there was just another free trade deal in the last year, uh, the RECP. Um, so the natural sort of state of East Asia is going to be, um, Chinese, China being the dominant military and economic power, like even if it never moves on Taiwan. So it's like, if that is like unthinkable, that's like a scenario we have to risk World War III over, then even if China doesn't go after Taiwan, like, shouldn't we just go to war with China anyway? Because that's like, it's that important. Well, I mean, if you're Bannon, you're already, Bannon is already, was already saying stuff like that a few years ago, saying like, we got to stop them now, right? So yeah. um, yes, yeah, so he was in a sense, self-consistent in his thinking, like, okay, big problem if China becomes the if China, instead of the U.S., becomes the hegemon in Asia, we have to stop that. It's easier to stop it now than in the future. So we, we have to start. I, I know war. Bannon has a pretty out there views on China. Did he actually say, you know, we, we need to go to war today a few years ago? Is that, was that actually his position? I don't know if he, I don't know if, I don't know exactly. Yeah, I don't know if he said that explicitly, but I, I believe that he and Pompeo both think that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that is, that's, I, I, I don't doubt it. I just wonder if they actually, yeah, they've actually said that out loud. Maybe not. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe if anybody said it would be Bannon because he was, you yeah. know, he was not even in, in official office for most of that period. Yeah. So. Right. So yeah, this is, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a fascinating topic and it's great to just have a background, someone with a little bit of, you know, technical background that can understand these things. And, you know, I just look at things like GDP and I just look at things like geography. And this is why, like, uh, uh, my, my book on, foreign policy, a little bit of an attack on, on the realist school. But the realists, at least, you know, they take geog geography and they take power very, very seriously. And they can look at a map and they can say, you know, Eastern Europe. I mean, that's that's not that's not our place. And then some of them have uh, actually more hawkish views on uh, China, like like John Mersheimer does. Um, but still, I mean, they're, 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 these people are at least somewhat connected to reality. Uh, while I think a lot of the DC, you know, a lot of the people in DC tend tend not to be. I mean, the, the same people. If you think the, you know, the Afghanistan and Iraq wars, you know, weren't done, you know, weren't run very well, um, and they weren't. You have to just understand this is the same class, and these are the same people, and there was no reform, and there was no purge after these conflicts. It's the same people thinking about what to do about Russia. And yeah, China. and and to go back to the technology, it wasn't just that the officers that got promoted were the ones reading, you know, Petraeus books on, you know, how to fight insurgencies and stuff. Yeah and not how to deal with, you know, hypersonic missiles. Um, at the same time, we just didn't upgrade our technology. So in this, for example, the Syria conflict where the Russians put placed a very small presence in Syria, uh, but were able to basically hold off the United States. Um, you know, there was a point at which we launched, I forgot the exact number, it might have been 16 tomahawks or some some pretty large number of tomahawks we launched at uh, at targets in Syria. And what wasn't really discussed very much is a lot of those tomahawks were shot down these things are going at these are subsonic yeah. so a fighter can go and shoot them down i mean they're pretty slow dumb technology compared to hypersonic yeah. missiles which are you know going mach three four five six seven so i mean that's old stuff and um people who watched the syria conflict carefully saw some interesting things about U.S. versus Russian military technology. Yeah, and just to be clear, you know what you're saying is not just that like the state. You were talked about the state of technology. The state of technology is not just like the offense is now favored over the defense. It's just that Russia, if you compare Russia's offensive advantage versus the U.S. advantage, Russia's just ahead technologically. Is it that's what you're saying? Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, if you if you get into the nitty gritty, like say you want to build a hypersonic missile, you, you, you need to, for example, have hypersonic wind tunnels. You need to actually have wind tunnels where the, the speed of flow is super, you know, well above uh, multiple Mach. And the U.S. doesn't really actually have any. And Chinese have like a Mach 30 wind tunnel, you know, several of them, I think. And so that's a very expensive thing. You need very specialized people. My father was a professor of aerospace what is this? Tell us what a, the wind tunnel looks like. Just It's just a gigantic, just explain what it is. Well, if you want to model, if, so you want to model the, the right shape of the, the, the missile that you're going to be using, and you want to figure out how superheated it's going to get from the plasma friction as it's moving. You're going to want to develop sensors that can work through that plasma layer. You're going to have to develop materials that can withstand that kind of pressure and temperature. So there's all kinds of really gnarly engineering that's super specialized. It has no commercial applications whatsoever, and you need really smart people doing it. So if you do not emphasize it, it's not going to get done. And so basically, like if you look at recent hypersonic tests of the United States, they've all been failures. Like we, we can't, you can't just flip a, you know, go like this and suddenly like, oh, well, we have smart people working at Apple. Uh, yeah. If we need hypersonic missiles, we'll have hypersonic missiles. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. So. The Russians never gave up on all kinds of aerospace, material science, um, aerodynamics kind of research that they were strong in during the Cold War, and they managed to preserve enough of it that they were, they've still been able to upgrade their weapon systems. And the Chinese now are making very, very fast strides in, in advancing their weapon systems. Yeah. Yeah. And in China, I mean, China, I think it seems like they've underinvested in their military relative to um, their their economy and sort of their human capital. So if Russia is punching well above its weight, um, as far as military technology, I think China is still punching way, way below its weight, right? Oh, absolutely. They're, they're at, you know, 2% of GDP uh, on defense and they could, they could easily crank that up. I mean, if you think about where is the manufacturing capability, where is the ship building capability in the world? It's, it's all there. It's not here. So, uh, you know, I, I just think we, we do not want to get into a cold war with them. It's, it's not a good thing for us. Yeah. I, yeah. I think that's, I think that's right. Um, so just, uh, have you been watching, um, have you been just a uh, shift topics a little bit, but not, not too far. Have you been uh, following the, the cultural developments in China? Because it seems there's some serious things going on. I mean, it seems like there's, they're thinking about the birth rate issue seriously. Um, they are, uh, uh, you know, clamping down on video games, clamping down on, you know, effeminate men on, on TV, you know, these very, you know, sort of just this, this cultural sort of, uh, right turn that's, you know, really scared the media. I think there was an article, I think it was in the Washington Post that say, you know, we have to think about it like a fascist regime, right? It has fascist values. It wants people to procreate, that it worships masculinity. And you could see how this can, this will really upset the, you know, this, this could get liberals sort of on board with the, with the Cold War. Uh, what do you think, what do you think is, you know, what do you think is going on there? You know, what's your analysis of sort of what the government's thinking and what they're doing? Well, remember I said that going back, this may seem overly dramatic, but going back to a kind of perspective on the world that anyone with a kind of either South or East Asian heritage would just naturally have, even if they grew up in the United States, they would, from talking to their uncles or whatever, they would know a little bit about this. These guys feel like they've been under siege by the West for a long time. So they, they don't feel like they can just let up and relax now. So, you know, of course, they wanted to use technology transfer, manufacturing capability transfer to build up their economy. But they never lost sight of the idea that the West was very threatening to them. Mm. And so this idea that, okay, we, we, we have to be pro-natalist, we have to get our reproductive rate back up, we have to make sure our society is ready to bear hardship, we have to help the poorest people in the country. You know, these were all important uh, priorities of Xi Jinping. So 
Um, you know, these are these are real things that are are going on there. Now, whether they're ultimately going to pay off or work uh, for China, it's, it's unclear. But th- there is a very different focus of the society there than, say, in the United States. Yeah. Have you seen uh, Dan Wang's um, uh, his uh, some of his writings on on the Chinese system? What he's saying about basically the idea is to transfer you know human brain power away from software and consumer products towards you know things like nuclear fusion, things in like energy, things like tangible goods. Uh, yeah. It, yeah. It's it's really amazing because like uh, if you go to Silicon Valley circa, you know, five to seven years ago, people would say things like I wanted a flying car and all I got was 140 characters of text. Right. And, you know, so the, the point of that being that there's a little bit it, it's too easy to make money through social networking, kind of lightweight Internet based uh, startup ideas. It's much, much harder to make money through any kind of real hardware advance or physical system advance. Yeah. Um, and so what and that so that was a kind of, uh, you know, kind of um, clever take uh, that's persisted over the last decade or so in Silicon Valley. And now you have people like Eric Schmidt and others who are trying to, you know, reignite U.S. innovation by, you know, starting up uh, companies that are doing real physical things. And so it, it's not a wrong take. But what's interesting is that they have more state capacity in China. Uh-huh. So that take, which is not a wrong take, it's a right take. The government said, yeah, that take is right. So all we don't need another de- you know, food delivery company or ride sharing company in Shanghai. Yeah. What we need is some of those engineers to go and work on AI for missile systems or, yeah. or faster high-speed trains or you know, whatever it is. Yeah. So they, they have the state power to recognize that and actually cause a shift by using market forces, by basically signaling that we're not going to let yeah. Alibaba and some of these other companies make unlimited profits the way that Facebook and Apple and uh, uh, maybe Apple's not a good example, but Facebook and uh, Google um, have been allowed to make here. We're going to cap them. We're going to kind of kneecap them a little bit, and that will push some of the human capital into these other uh, areas. Yeah. Yeah. And I, here, I mean, in the US and the fact that, you know, we, is it just this, you know, the, 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 you know, the fact that all this brain power went into consumer products and, um, and software development, is that just sort of a market failure? Like these other things like, uh, you know, new it's, it's, energy systems and, and stuff like that. I mean, that is a public good and it just tends to be underprovided for. While if you have a strong state, you can just direct people or you can just uh, actually clamp down on the stuff that you want less of and just let the other, the things you want more of take off and support them? No, in a way, it's not a market failure in the sense that, you know, people like Zuckerberg were brilliant in figuring out that, hey, these social networks have a special kind of lock-in characteristic, right? If, if you're the biggest, everybody's going to want to be in your network and number two is going to disappear completely. So you, you get sort of monopolistic kind of advantages. So it's totally a market, you know, success that a bunch of entrepreneurs figured this out. And so all the all the action was to try to do a land grab and become the best ride, the dominant ride sharing platform, the dominant Airbnb. Yeah, I was talking to market uh, market failure in the sense that these other things that are sort of public goods are underprovided for, right? So people were doing what made sense within you know the confines of the system, and they were doing things that brought value to people. Uh, but there's other things that they could be doing that would bring more value to society as a whole. But the producer of that you know th- these things can't capture enough of the profits from it, so it just it just goes uh you know just there's just underproduction here. That's correct, and and also just another reality that intrudes here is just the 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 reality of uh technology you know how hard is it to advance the technology in batteries how hard is it to acknowledge uh, to advance the technology 
in, you know, flying cars or something like this. It's just not easy. And so, um, you know, even if you, even if the market knew that that was a good thing to do, it doesn't mean that necessarily the people who go and bang their heads on it are going to succeed. It may take them two decades to succeed. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's, that's like, that's like a time horizon argument, right? It's just that, you know, it can be done, but people want, want, you know, rewards, if not, uh, right away, you know, at least not, not in two decades in the future. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. So the, yeah, this is a, I mean, a lot of these, a lot of these social network innovations or sort of internet kind of applications didn't require any new technology. Actually, they just required sort of combinatorially combining existing, existing technology. Sure. So yeah, the, on the, going back to the, the cultural thing, um, you, um, my view of the Chinese, China and the birth rate issue, and I think it's a huge issue for humanity because, you know, it's sort of, uh, you know, the China's uh, what, like one fifth of the world's population. So what their popular, what, you know, what they have to their population is going to, um, determine all to a large extent the the future world population. And, you know, it's sort of an open question, how like how much modernity um, causes low birth rates and sort of how fixable it is by uh, government intervention. So I'm watching I'm watching the, um, uh, the uh, what happens to Chinese fertility in the next you know five ten twenty years. Um, you know I think it's a very a very important metric. Um, and my my model of it is basically look if China wants to get it up you know wants it bad enough they can do it right. If you if it came down to it you could just tax all single people at a hundred percent right. You could you can you can uh, ta- tax people with children at zero percent you can just turn the propaganda up to 11 and value that above all other things so if you really really want to do it you can it's just a question of you know how serious you know you want to be about it and you you know you pay attention to chinese culture and chinese media and you know the chinese elite discourse um what's your what's your understanding of how seriously they take the the birth rate issue and how far do you think they'll push on it i i think that you know again just as i think in your book your 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 well your recent book you know, you, you pointed out that a lot of what drives the actions of society are, are certain interest groups, right? It's not, it's not like there's some grand wizard who plots a strategy and then that's the strategy that the country follows. Yeah. China might be a little closer to that sure. because you might say, okay, Xi Jinping is a, in terms of being the single most powerful actor on the planet, maybe he is actually autonomous actor, but, um, you know, he still has to bring along all the other power centers in the Chinese government to say, hey, a pretty significant chunk of GDP we need to spend now so that 20 years from now we'll have enough uh, workers entering the workforce. And I don't know whether he'll be successful in, 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 in turning the ship that dramatically. Yeah. So I, I think the government will, it is clear the government will try to, for example, all, all these dr- pretty drastic things they've already done, like uh, for eliminate private tutoring and things like this to make it less expensive to raise a child and, and allow uh, less affluent families to compete with more affluent families. All these things are a signal that they do realize the importance of this and they are going to try hard. The question is, are they going to try that hard? Hmm. And uh, that I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's to be, to be determined. Um, you know, there, there's uh, another thing, I mean, I want to ask you about in the Chinese system. What is the role of, um, uh, you know, this is an issue in the United States about standardized tests and meritocracy. Um, what is the role of uh, standardized tests in uh, Chinese um, admissions at universities? And then there's also, um, it's also has a role to play in the civil service. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the, uh, uh, the role of the, you know, these sort of uh, psychometrics in, in Chinese government uh, policy or any kinds of tests that they use compared to the United States? 
Well, it's interesting because they're, they're not as into the kind of abstract psychometrics that in the United States, things like IQ measures and things like this, that, that uh, some Americans are focused on, but they are very uh, invested in meritocracy. So the college entrance exam there is a monster test and it's both a cognitive ability and a, in a sense, conscientiousness test, because you, you just, you can't do well on that test unless you study very hard. Mm-hmm. So even if in, in the United States, if you were a smart, but lazy kid, yeah. you could, you could, you could potentially SAT. like, yeah. you can do better especially off. in the old days when the ceiling on the SAT was super high, you, you could literally get a one in a million score on the SAT. And then people would look very seriously at your application, even if you had B's and C's yeah. in your high school transcript, or even if you just dropped out of high school. But in China, it's not like that. You have to basically do well in this Gaokao. And the Gaokao is both a knowledge test and an ability test. So there are really hard problems on the Gaokao, but there are also lots of things where you just have to know a lot of stuff. So they're, in a way, they've not decomposed conscientiousness from raw uh, G or cognitive ability the way that you know a, a U.S. psychometrician would, would think about mm-hmm. it. Um, however, they you know, they don't care. And yeah. so they have this system that does, I mean, they have plenty of people. So they, they have plenty of talented people. So they are able to select very uh, able people for their top universities. And furthermore, the Communist Party itself, the whole system of promotion within the Communist Party, this is not understood by most uh, Americans, um, is not is a very long timescale meritocracy. Mm. So anybody who reaches like the top level of say the top 300 uh, people in the Communist Party has had to do things like, you know, run a city with population of 10 million or run a province, which, you know, is the size of Germany. You know, they, they had to do. And, and, and that, for example, famously, like the current guy who is the the boss of uh, Zhejiang province was previously the head of the manned space program. Yeah. So there's actually circulation between different parts of government, not just like political governance, but also even technical development or major companies in China that are state owned. You might run or have a senior position at one of the state-owned companies and then become a city manager or provincial governor. So all of these things are various. They're, they're long timescale tests uh-huh. of your capabilities. Yeah. And it, it is real. I mean, when you meet the senior people there, you know, again, they're, they're, they could be dull, lifeless, bureaucratic type people, but they are pretty able. They're not, no one says like, hey, I had a conversation with somebody from the Ministry of Finance in China and they didn't under, actually understand how <laughs> options pricing works. No, they actually do understand yeah. how options pricing work. Whereas people here at the Treasury or uh, SEC often don't understand how options pricing works. So anyway. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's uh, some d- data, you know, that there's some uh, politi- political science papers where they actually show that you can connect um, uh, objective performance as far as GDP growth to promotion um, to uh, to promotions in China. So those that do well and like uh, growth at the local level, um, you know, mayors or province leaders or whatever tend to get promoted and those that don't, you know, t- tend not to. So it seems to be, there seems to be uh, an evaluation system based on actual hard metrics. Um, yeah. And-, and, 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 you know, a lot of the, this is something that I, I'm not a super expert on this, but I'm very interested in this, this issue. So I'm always asking real China specialists and typically, you know, Chinese China specialists about this is that a lot of these functions, the idea of having bureaucrats that advance through, you know, good performance and then having like actually a whole sub entity within the communist party, which evaluates these, you know, there's a whole separate independent entity that evaluates these people. And, and there's this whole tradition going back through, back to imperial times of the idea that you have a core of bureaucrats, they're supposed to be extremely able, 
And furthermore, they're supposed to be monitored and measured for performance by an independent body right. and all the subtleties of bribery. And, you know, you should assign a guy from this region to run yeah. that region. So he doesn't have a lot of local mafia connections locally. He's just a stranger from a totally different part of China. And he's got to run this thing yeah. and he's going to be monitored over a five year time scale. That all those ideas are very old. They're not new ideas in China. They're old ideas. They're classical yeah. ideas. So so the idea that, oh, there's this communist party that's very brittle and it's a lot like Stalin. Yeah running the country is, is actually wrong. It's missing this whole cultural, yeah. historical component of governance in China. Yeah. And the, and the, and the, sele- the people who select and uh, manage the sort of the cadre system, that's, that's the communist party, right? So the communist party at one level up appoints the, uh, uh, the people at the level down, right? So it's like national and provincial. Yeah, if, you, if you were to draw it like a kind of HR org chart, functional diagram, like you would have for like a company like Google or something, there is this pyramid where you're rising in the party and, and to rise, you're talking about a 20, 30 year rise. Okay. Like you join the party when you're out of college and you, it takes you 30 years to become a senior official. Right. So as you're rising in this pyramid and the pyramid is getting smaller and smaller, right? You, the base thing is like, a, you know, I mean, the base of the communist party is 90 million people. Right. So, but, but uh, officials maybe have like a million people at this layer, but when you get to the top layer, it's an order of magnitude at each step, it's getting smaller. But the, the thing which people miss is there's a separate silo that you would draw over here, which is the evaluators, who, whose job it is to actually go around and, and investigate these guys and see, are they corrupt? Uh, you know, what is actually happening in the city? Is the growth, are the growth numbers faked? You know, how did he raise the tax revenue? You know, so there's this whole separate evaluative uh, organization within the Communist Party. And, and so, you know, again, you could imagine it doesn't work well. Um, maybe there'll be periods of time that it is working well. I think it is probably working well right now. Yeah, yeah. I think it's fascinating as sort of an alternative model of governance because if China didn't exist, I don't know if we would think that a modern government could work like this. Because if you look at all the advanced states, they sort of look similar, right? The U.S., the U.K., Japan. They have a civil service, they have elections, um, they have a market economy, and you might think this is, you know, this is what modernism is. This is the only way, you know, that government can function at the end of history. And then you have China, and so, it's just a completely different system, right? And so it's sort of open. It's a proof of concept that whatever we're doing, and if it's not working, that's pessimistic because then you could say, you know, we're going to be stagnating and there's no other possibility. Um, it's at least a proof of concept that something is something different is possible. So when the, when the early contacts between uh, European civilization and China were happening, people like Leibniz, the famous, you know, philosopher and mathematician, he was a huge fan of Chinese uh, society and governance and all kinds of things. And so Lots of ideas um, that were prevalent in China got popularized in countries like France and the UK. So if you actually ask, when did they start having examination systems for admitting people to Cambridge or top universities in UK and France? Turns out that was an adopted system from China. So you can actually find you know, arguments in parliament where some of the parliamentarians in the UK, in, the, in England are complaining that this is an unnatural system. It's being adopted by China and this is not how we should select students yeah. for university or the civil service. Mm-hmm. So, so even the, the, the civil service in these countries is somewhat modeled on, you know, maybe they didn't have a really realistic idea of how it was being done in China, but they had the idea that there, there should be some kind of meritocracy, uh, a competent bureaucracy. And so if you go back, like there, it's actually many of these ideas were actually imported uh, to the West from China. So 
Um, but but it is true what you say that the system there is unique. It's quite different from yeah. actually what they have. Yeah, there. I did not know that. I didn't know that the the history of standardized tests in the West actually came came from China. Is it, that that that's accurate. That they, so there wasn't like a was there anything resembling like a standardized test before before the encounter with China? No, in fact, the debates in Parliament are very interesting because obviously there are a lot of people saying we're saying this is unnatural. This is a, some strange Chinese invention. Why we should not adopt it in England. Mm. That's it. That's interesting. And the British were were the British the first to first to do this? What did continental Europe have anything like that? I'm not sure if they were actually the first, uh, but uh, I there are there is uh, there are people who have both uh, in France and the UK or in England who have written uh, about how these this adoption of uh, examination systems entrance exam exam uh, systems were came to be adopted. Yeah. Could, and so you can find actually historical documents. Do you, could, uh, do you have a reference for that? So we can put it, uh, we yeah. Can put it in. Yeah. I have a, I have some blog posts on this. I'll send you the link. Okay, great. And for people who want to read more about the Chinese system, do you have books or articles you, you particularly recommend? That's a good question. Um, you mean like the current system, how, how yeah, people just want to the... understand just, you know, how, how the whole thing works. The, the best, Okay, the, the most accessible discussions of this, there's a guy called Eric X. Lee, who's a venture capitalist in China, but he, he was educated at Berkeley and he's very fluent in English. And so he's often been like a kind of apologist for the Chinese system. And like he gave, he gives TED Talks and things like this. And sometimes he'll actually have slides showing exactly how the promotion process works in the Chinese system. At a more kind of rigorous level, there's I forgot his name now. There's a guy called there's a there's a American philosopher, political philosopher who's now at I think Beijing University or Tsinghua University. Uh, I think I think Daniel Bell. Bell is his name. It's called the China Model. Bell. Yes, Daniel Bell. Yeah. So B- Bell and his kind of circle, they've been writing a lot. I think about a lot of these things, and so Bell. A lot of people in the West would say Bell is an apologist for the communist system, but at least you get some details of how he thinks it operates. Yeah, I've, I've read uh, I've read Bell's book. I, I think it, the, the detail is actually. I mean, it's just a little bit of an apologist for the system, but it's it's from a political theorist perspective. So it's more it's more sort of considering like the justness of it, and the you know then like if you just want sort of the details to understand. Uh, there's there's a yeah. Eric- Eric Lee is better for the actual details, like like the actual diagram of how the whole thing works. Like you can find it in his, his talks. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, Lee is good. There's also um, there's a, a a very accessible book by a Australian journalist, uh, Richard McGregor, called The Party. Um, so yes, yes, yes. That, that one's good too. And then there's a. Now, I should say that I should say that we've kind of been painting it as a functional kind of de- reasonably well high functioning system, yeah. but you can find many cynical Chinese who will just say like the party is totally corrupt, it's bullshit. Uh, only private companies in China are the ones creating the value. Oh, what's and the so what's the steel man? Yeah, views. what's the steel man? I think we've been given sort of a positive spin because I think the media is actually more towards you know the system is corrupt and terrible. So you know I think it's good to have a counter to that. But what's the best what's the best argument for the other side? You can find academic studies of, you know, the level of corruption in the Communist Party. Um, in fact, there's, gosh, I, I, sorry, I haven't looked at this in a while, but there's even a recent book about, uh, academic book uh, by an American. She's of, I think, Chinese yeah. ethnicity, uh, Chinese originally from China, but she's a professor here in the U.S. and she's studied corruption in China. Yeah, I think, I think you're, I think you're um, thinking I, of uh, Yun Yun Ang. And I think, I think she's actually at University of Michigan. So she's, she's, uh, she's your neighbor. That, I don't know how close that, it is to Michigan yes, State. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. You, well, you, you actually know this stuff cause you're from uh, your backgrounds in political science. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's, it's tough to find really good sources. Um, 
you know, obviously, if you read Chinese fluently, you can, there's a much more diverse set of discussions about all the stuff that you can find. Um, it, but I think it's very, I think the main thing, someone who's not in a position to spend a lot of time thinking about this and also has the linguistic capability to do it, you should just adopt a sort of low confidence perspective. Like, I'm not sure that the system, okay, there's some chance the system there is really messed up and it's fragile and brittle. But there's also a chance that actually for at least this period of time, like a few decades yeah. or a couple generations, they've got a functioning system yeah. that we should really take seriously and it can actually get stuff accomplished. And I think there is evidence for the second thing because, you know, they did build many, many kilometers of high speed yeah. train and they do have functioning, you know, <laughs> nuclear weapons. And, you know, they, they did manage to do lots of stuff. Right. So, um yeah, yeah, my my preferred my yeah my preferred way of looking at it is look, it's hard to like say in the abstract like how good the system is, right? That's just it's just too hard of a question, and you don't have all the data, and you can't you know it's a, it's one point four billion people. I mean, like you can you can build a narrative that says anything. You know, I prefer just to look at hard metrics, right? I just like to look at GDP growth. I just like to look at living standards. I like to look at you know expectations of what's going to happen to the Chinese system versus you know what's actually happened, and then you know sort of take a you know sort of a black box view and say okay whatever, if it looks like the outputs are good, it's probably working, right? And then like, you know. It's also true that there's no substitute for having a very long time scale over which you're carefully observing what happens. So I had exactly this kind of argument with, or discussion with a couple of colleagues um, who are Americans, but were living in China at the time. And this is about 10 years ago. And at the time, the pollution level in Beijing was just unbelievably bad. Like you would go there and like there were days where you'd just be hacking and okay. And so one of the things one of my uh, colleagues said, and this guy's an incredibly smart guy, he just said, and he, he had been living in Shenzhen. He said, look, here's a good test for these guys. They have every incentive to clean up the pollution problem in Beijing because the elites actually are there and uh, the, it's giving them a bad reputation internationally. So let's just see how fast they clean up the air quality in Beijing. And, and they actually have. Now the air quality in Beijing is quite good. So, or at least much, much better than it was 10 years ago. So so on that particular prediction metric, uh, they did seem to do what uh, what they said yeah. to do. You compare it to Washington, D.C. and, you know, look at the sort of, people are saying it's getting worse in recent years with crime and the homeless encampment. So you think it's the same logic. Or the metro. Yeah. Yeah, 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 the infrastructure, everything, and you think it'd be the same logic, but apparently we can't, we can't make Washington D.C. presentable. So <laughs> that might tell you something, yeah, about our own. Uh, yeah, no, that's a good, that's a good test. Yeah, exactly. So I, um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, this was going to be um, the China thing was going to be like one, uh, one topic out of like ten. I hope to cover, and we've we've got an hour already just on China, and so I, I think. I think we could just we should just keep going on China and then like the other stuff we can do some other time because I, I think there's there, sure. I think there's a uh, I think there I think there's a lot here. Um, so um, yeah, so what do you what, what do you see as sort of the um, uh, there's a um, you know what, what do you see what do you think about the state of Chinese science at like the higher level? So something one thing people will say will be like oh China can produce a lot of STEM graduates um, you know they can do well average you know the population mean on standardized tests but like you know the highest level physics or the highest level engineering and or the highest level math that's still um, an American advantage um, we, we, you know what's what's your impression there? That is a great question and and, and the answer to that question. You know, again, this is the advantage of having been around for a while. So, you know, I've been a professor now for 
I don't know, 30 plus years or something. So I, I can actually tell you how it's evolved in the last 30 years and then make a projection going forward. Now that the single most, uh, you know, if, if there's one takeaway for your audience, uh, which uh, I could give, it's that if you make an estimate of the number of high ability STEM PhDs in China uh, in the near future compared to the United States, it could be an order of magnitude larger. Mm. We're not talking about like two times larger. We're talking about 10 times larger. So now how do I get to that number? Well, uh, the population base is 4X. Um, the fraction of the population that can master kind of advanced mathematics, like do well on the PISA math, you know, score at the highest level on the PISA math uh, test is, is also a multiple of, you know, that tail population in the United States or at, well, per capita. And um, furthermore, I think students are about twice as likely to major in STEM in China as they are in the United States. So it's easy to get a, an order of magnitude out, like a factor of 10. Mm -hmm. And that's for real. If you then start looking at the numbers more carefully, you realize, yeah, they're producing 10 times the number of high-level technologists in the United States. Um, now, that is just starting to happen now. So if, if 20 years ago I went to a Chinese university, even the best ones, there would be very, very few world-class researchers there. Very few. There would be people who are competent to teach a student, say, to the master level, master's level, and then that person could come to Berkeley or Harvard and get a PhD in the United States. Um, that was certainly the case 20 years ago. Now, when you go back, there will be many, many labs on the campus that are doing world-class work. And often the guy who's running the lab, not always, sometimes the guy running the lab was trained in China, but often the guy running the lab was trained at, you know, Georgia Tech and went back to China. So... It's a moving target, but it's moving very strongly in a certain direction. Um, I was speaking to a venture capitalist who held a very senior position uh, at Microsoft for many years, who's originally from China, and he's a computer scientist. And uh, he was telling me things like, well, you know, the archive, A-R-X-I-V, um, where, you know, papers in physics and math and computer science are posted, um, you know, an American invention, you know, dates back to the early 90s. But the, the archive is where these papers, you know, the top AI papers will go there and things like this. Um, he says, you know, in China, there's this, the equivalent of Stack Overflow, which is a, a site which exists to discuss certain topics or questions or ideas in technical subjects. He says there's the equivalent of a Stack Overflow discussing the top archive papers, which is completely in Chinese. It's completely in Mandarin. Mm -hmm. And so if you're a Chinese engineer and you speak English and you also read Chinese, you, you have access to like two deep pools of technical knowledge. Like you, you can see a whole Chinese analysis of, okay, how well did these transformer uh, uh, units modules work in this particular AI image processing, you know, implementation, et cetera, et cetera. And you can see the Chinese discussion of it and you can see the English discussion of it. And I'm reminded of when I first started as a, in physics, uh, it was still, there was still a hangover of the cold war. And a lot of people were still learning German and Russian mm. because there was lots of stuff published in Russian journals that you couldn't get access to unless you could read Russian. My father had to learn German. And I think, I don't know if he studied Russian, but he definitely had to learn German uh, as part of his PhD at the university of Minnesota. Um, so there is that dual kind of uh, reservoir uh, structure evolving now where there's a separate technological reservoir of information in China. Um, and it's still in the early phase now, but in, in some particular areas like AI and software, it's, it's advancing very fast. Um, maybe some 
areas like uh, hypersonics and things like that too. So um, I think it's for real. I think I think they're going to catch up and, you know, maybe they won't surpass us because the West has a much longer history of really the highest level, most creative kind of scientific activity. And it will take a while for them to catch up. It took Japan a long time to catch up. So the Japanese, if you look at their progress, they were playing catch up for a long time. And it's easier to catch up in applied sciences and engineering and harder in this really kind of creative, purely scientific kind of stuff. But if you look at Japan performance in Nobel Prizes, it's really accelerated a lot in the last few decades. Mm -hmm. And that's a that's a lagging indicator. So I actually think that that final step, it's not clear when they'll finally, you know, uh, draw even with, uh, say, the West or the United States. But in terms of like technological innovation, uh, 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 implementation of big engineering projects, stuff like that, I think they're already at parity. Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, another question I, you know, I wonder about is that I know in a lot of countries, I know Korea is like this, that the American universities are sort of seen as like the most prestigious in the world. So we talked about the sort of the psychological, um, you know, the sort of the psychological effect of people thinking, you know, Westerners are our number one and will always be number one. I mean, that's the U.S., uh, um, you know, that's sort of the U.S. perspective. Um, if you're like, you know, the, one of the you know smartest people in, in China now, you know, if you're a young person, and you're going to college, is something like Harvard still sort of seen as like, you know, the, the, the main thing you should aim for? Or do the Chinese universities in the minds of, uh, you know, Chinese people, young people, particularly, uh, do they have that sort of, you know, prestige? Because Xi Jinping's daughter went to went to Harvard, did she not? Or is she, is she still there? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think I think she went to Harvard, right? Um, she did go to Harvard. Yeah. Um but I'm not sure she's part of the actual intellectual elite in China, yeah. but but um, definitely part of the elite, but uh, right. maybe not the intellectual elite. So, you know, if you define some cutoff, like, okay, you're at the one in 1,000 or one in 10,000 capability level, say for STEM, like intellectually or for STEM or something, um, what does the world look like to a Chinese kid? I think most of them are going to want to try to get into the top Chinese universities. They're going to want to get into Tsinghua or Beida or Zida, basically the, the top layer of Chinese universities. But then the next stage right now, they would seriously consider trying to come out to you know MIT or something to do their PhD. Mm-hmm. And then they have a lot of optionality because they could stay in the US and they could start a company in the US, start a company in China, get a faculty job in the US, get a faculty job in China. By coming out, they get a lot of optionality. Um, now, one thing that people, I think, underrate, so so Westerners who go to China, they realize like, shit, it is pretty tough to learn Chinese. Yeah. Like the number of Westerners who are really fully fluent in Chinese is very small. It's equally hard for someone who grew up in China to learn English. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my father, who was a professor of aerospace engineering, he always spoke with a very thick accent and he, he would... Uh, you know, not put the articles in the right place because there are no articles in, in Chinese. Yeah. So he would never, he, he was never fully fluent in English. And that was always a handicap for him uh, working in the United States, living in the United States. Well, because of the linguistic challenge, there's always going to be some inertia where even if it's, there's a big gain from coming to the United States, some fraction of people, even people who say who are really good at math, will just prefer to stay in China. And we're finally getting to that tipping point. So, for example, there's very little immigration to the U.S. from Japan now. No, very few Japanese want to come to the. I mean, they want to come to the United States and visit, but there's not a lot of net immigration from Japan uh, to the United States. Even though maybe, like you could say, like incomes are higher, the quality of life is higher in the United States. It's not as crowded, you know. But the main reason is that the the barrier to get yourself to the point where you can function well in this 
alien societies. It's quite, there's quite a big uh, factor there. And so I think you're going to start to see fewer and fewer Chinese who want to permanently come to the United States. I think that's going to be a diminishing uh, you know, pool of people over time, yeah, barring some kind of collapse or some nightmare scenario in China. Yeah. Yeah, so let's um let's talk a little bit about where where your sort of interest in China and experience with China intersects with some of your other interests. So you were um you were affiliated or you were consulting with a company called uh, BG BGI, right? Um, and they were uh, they were they were uh, trying they were trying to uh, if I if I remember correctly gather a large. Um, uh, gather basically, a, you know, a large data set, have a, um, a lot of people's uh, genome sequenced, and then have things like, you know, uh, intelligence test scores and trying to uh, figure out, uh, you know, f- f- uh, predictors for, you know, GWAS kind of, uh, you know, kind of studies. Is, is, that, is that right? Is, is, that, is that what the company was doing and sort of what, what, uh, what ended up happening? So th- this is slightly ancient history, but I'm happy to go through it. Uh, with you, by the way, there was a an, an entire documentary called DNA Dreams made by some Belgian woman or Dutch woman yeah. who uh, an, a documentary filmmaker who 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 did this whole uh, thing on our our project and the, the company. Um, so BGI, uh, the it's an acronym and it used to stand for Beijing Genomics Institute, mm. um, but later they moved from Beijing to Shenzhen and just they just called themselves BGI. And uh, it was a huge company. And it was it's one of these, uh, if you know about how capitalism works in China, like local state governments will often come up with very attractive packages for entrepreneurs and scientists to like found a company uh, in their in their city, because the bureaucrats, for them, it's a big win if they can say, oh, we have the leading gene sequencing company in the world here in Shenzhen. And that's like a little check mark on their evaluation for economic development. Mm-hmm. Right. So. That's kind of what happened. These were researchers from the Chinese Academy of Sciences who were recruited down to Shenzhen in, let's say, early 2000s um, to, to basically build up a giant gene sequencing company in, uh, in Shenzhen. And so they were covered a lot in like uh, the media economists, because at one point they had more sequencing power in their uh, facility, which was in a converted shoe factory. It had been like an old shoe factory that they converted into this huge gene sequencing lab. And I I spent a fair amount of time there, actually. Um, They at one point had more sequencing power than the rest, than anybody else in the world. And they were like Illumina's, Illumina's a US company that makes the leading gene sequencing machines. And they were Illumina's biggest customer. Okay. So I read about them and I, I was, I happened to be on sabbatical in Taiwan. And so I emailed the, the director, the, the leaders, the head of, BGI. And I said, Hey, I'm, I'm this physics guy, but, uh, I, since you guys have all the sequencing power, I have a bunch of interesting genomics projects you guys might be interested in. And they said, Oh, we'll come and give a talk. So I went and gave a talk and I brought a couple of my collaborators and we basically convinced them that it would be useful to, it would be an interesting science project to try to figure out where in the human genome are the locations which are affecting intelligence. So we know that intelligence varies between people. We know it's partially heritable. So it is influenced by DNA. And perhaps we could find, this is remember 10 years ago. So we could find maybe the first few hits of places in the genome that are affecting, uh, you know, uh, your intelligence. So having, you know, variant A in this location slightly raises your intelligence and having variant B has a slightly detrimental effect to your, you know, brain development. And at the time, this was extremely, you know, radical thinking that uh, this might be possible. (laughs) And, um, 
fast forward to today, we know of thousands of individual loci in the genome that are affecting intelligence. And we can even do a crude job of predicting someone's cognitive ability from their DNA alone. But 10, 12 years ago, that was just crazy talk. Mm -hmm. But we had this idea and they were interested. So they said, well, if you can assemble a good cohort for us to genotype, we'll genotype them for you. And we're like, you know, awesome, unbelievable. So, so we, I, I and our team started recruiting uh, very high IQ individuals right, yes. for this project this part, yeah. to spit in a little tube and we collected their DNA. And, and so, and now what happened is, and, and anybody familiar with um, tech companies will be familiar. The story will not be a shock. So when these guys started out, they had a ton of money. It had come basically from kind of state sources because they had been recruited to start this, to, to kind of locate this technology in Shenzhen by the local government. And at first they could just do projects whose payoff was prestige. So getting on the cover of nature because they did the first whole panda genome, <laughs> or the, you know, the, that, that for them would still pay off because they would say, look, we're this Chinese company, but we're on the cover of nature and we did all this. Right. Um, and that's how I got to know of their existence. But over time, they got they became under they came under pressure to actually generate profits. Like, what is your business model? What are you actually doing? Uh -huh. Like, um, just doing all these science projects isn't actually going to make you a viable company. And you've spent you know hundreds of millions of dollars of you know the government's money here. So eventually, they had to basically pivot away from doing these ambitious projects. And now their main revenue source is something called NIPT, which is non invasive. Uh, pregnancy testing, so, uh, prenatal testing, which means that you can take a little bit of blood from a pregnant woman and there are enough DNA fragments of the fetus from the fetus that are floating around her blood that you can learn, get some information about the genotype of the fetus. And in particular, you can test for uh, against Down syndrome. You can screen against trisomy 21. So that's their number one very uh, practical uh, revenue driver right now. And so we were working with them and we assembled this huge cohort, but they at some point said, Hey, we can't afford to do the sequencing that we promised you because we've now got to pivot and do more practical things. So we never really got the project finished. Mm. And we now know enough about, you know, the, for example, the effect sizes of the most impactful variants in your genome. We know that had we done, had they carried through their end of the deal, we would have found those hits. So we would have been the first people to find um, gene variants that are associated with intelligence, but it didn't, it didn't work just because the business model, basically they were forced to pivot and never completed the project. It, would us. it still be so, valuable to get that data because you have these people at the tail ends, uh, tail end of intelligence, right? And so just to have a it's still large sample, I mean, it, can that still be, are, are there swabs sitting somewhere? Is, is it on a computer? Like, is there, is there any way to still do this? There are samples in Shenzhen that we don't have access to uh -huh. that the company has. How, and how many, how but, many intelligent people did you get? And what was the uh, criterion? Wow. I think we, we were recruiting people who were at least three ish standard deviations above average. And we recruited thousands. Wow. Yeah. That sounds, so, sounds, yeah. Uh, sounds like it could be valuable. Like well, why did you ever think of maybe they could go to like the Shenzhen government or the, or the uh, provincial government and say, uh, uh, we're, uh, uh, you know, uh, this will be good for the nation. We'll figure out, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the genomics of IQ and this will, this will help the country and help embryo selection and all that. Was, was that ever an option? It, it's very funny because the company switched from being this, because the original founders were all scientists 
But it, it eventually became so practical and business focused that all of these older projects, which were really for purely scientific, uh, whose motivations were purely scientific, became totally uninteresting to these guys. There's almost like this very negative reaction, like the new regime comes in and they're like, well, all this old stuff the old regime was doing, like, just throw that all in the trash. We don't, yeah. that was the bad, those are the bad days of the company when yeah. they were just burning. And when, when, did the, when, did this shift, and when did this shift happen? Like when was the, the, the switch? It happened, uh, we started working with them around 2010. This would have happened around 2012, 2014. There, again, like there's even more detail to the story. So for example, they got into a big fight with Illumina. The Illumina was their main supplier of the actual gene sequencing technology. And BGI bought a US company called Complete Genomics, which had a competing technology for Illumina. So another big distraction for them was they spent, I don't know, five plus years trying to uh, fix the complete genomics technology so that they would have a competing technology to Illumina for gene sequencing. And it's still unclear right now. They, right now, their market share in that uh, in the gene sequencing uh, hardware market is, is tiny, um, mainly their footholds in China. And it's still a little, somewhat controversial whether their technology is competitive with Illumina's or not. But you can imagine that was a huge distraction from you know, doing some crazy science project on human intelligence. You know, we've got to, we've got to make this, you know, new technology. They, I think they bought complete genomics for $150 million or something. And they're like, we got to get this thing working. Sorry, can't talk to you, yeah. you know? And even some of our teams, some of our most talented guys on the team ended up switching over to working on the complete genomics technology uh, away from our project. So it, it's a very complicated story, but uh, some someday somebody should make a <laughs> yeah. It's a fascinating story. What did it teach you about? Um, and just from your own uh, other experiences, what uh, what do you think about the Chinese attitudes towards things like genetic engineering, uh, embryo selection? It seems like in America, it seems like to me, my, my my view of the lay of the land is like if this was debated openly, like this technology would be shut down. But the fact that it's not really, it doesn't really register, just allows the technology to proceed. Um, so it's like unpopular. But still, I think, you know, the technology is proceeding in the U.S. You know, what do you, how do you see the situation in China? So it's interesting. So um, as with everything, the answer is a little bit complicated. So if you if you ask the average Chinese person or you ask the average Chinese couple that are in an IVF clinic, whether that IVF clinic is in New York or Singapore or Beijing, they are much, much more open minded about things like genetic engineering, gene editing, embryo selection. They're not queasy. Their initial cultural reference when you mention these things is not the Nazi party in Germany in the 1940s. Mm. I mean, they're just like, you know, it's it's so Eurocentric and racist for Americans when they bring up this topic. They're lecturing to some South Asian guy or some guy from Japan and saying, hey, don't you know about the Nazis? And these other guys are like, you guys did that. You guys did it to yourselves. We weren't involved. And now you're lecturing me about reproductive technology in the 21st century. Fuck you. Yeah. Basically, that that is that is literally the, the 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 example of the kind of East-West culture clash that you're we're talking about right now. But at the same time, to give you an example, one of the populations that we we're recruiting smart people from was the population of kids in China who had scored really high on the science and math Olympiads. Mm -hmm. OK, and so we had a contact in the uh, the the. The, the professors who were training these kids. So we said, can we genotype these kids? Turns out their gene privacy laws, believe it or this is something like no, like uh, anti-China hawk could possibly believe, but 
you know, already in 2010, the gene privacy laws in China were so strong that mm. the Ministry of Education was telling us, no, you cannot genotype these kids. Even if their parents sign mm. a consent, you cannot genotype them. And, and so, you know, it's complicated, right? So the, the cultural attitude is very favorable toward these new technologies, but the specific uh, regulatory situation in China actually at times could be worse uh-huh. uh, than the United States. So it's... it's, it's yeah, that is interesting. There's just not, there's just a sort of a discrepancy between sort of what people say and what they do. I think one of I read one of your blog posts. There's something like sixty percent of people who do IVF uh, do some kind of genetic screening in in the U.S. Is that right? Yeah. So in the U.S. and in most developed countries now, if you do IVF, uh, so I don't know if I should go through the whole IVF pipeline for your I'll go, no, go, go ahead. Uh, yeah, this is long form. So. Okay. So in IVF, what you're doing is you typically the people doing it have a fertility issue. And what they're doing is they are uh, performing a hormone stimulation on the mother-to-be's body so that they can extract multiple eggs at once. And then those eggs are fertilized outside the woman's body. And then you, you, you inevitably typically will end up with an embryo selection problem. So you have to decide which embryo you want to use out of, you might have five, you might have 20. Um, and so the question is, how do you choose which embryo that you're going to actually, you hope will actually become your child? An additional aspect of this is that um, to, in order to give the mother's body some time to recover from the hormone treatment, uh, it's become standard to freeze the embryos. So after you fertilize them, you let them grow to like 100 cells, and then you freeze them in liquid nitrogen. And it's been shown, as far as we can tell, that freezing and thawing them doesn't do anything to them. They're just very simple molecular machines. Mm-hmm. Um and so it's standard now to take a little biopsy. You, you, this thing grows into a ball. And before you freeze it, you take a little biopsy from something called the trophectoderm, which is the part that will become the placenta. It's not going to become your kid. It's going to become the placenta, but it has the same DNA as your kid. And so they take a little biopsy. And in most advanced clinics and in about two-thirds of all uh, IVF cycles in the United States, the parents will have that biopsy taken and they'll do at least some level of simple uh, genetic screening. So looking for chromosomal abnormalities, for example, um, is totally standard. And so what we built is a pipeline that connects there. So that same sample that you take, this is the company genomic prediction that I uh, co-founded. That's that standard biopsy, which is taken, there are millions of embryos biopsied this way each year. Uh, around the world. So that little sample, then you can amplify the DNA from it and you can get the whole genome genotype of that particular embryo. And then you can have much, much more information about the character, uh, the, 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 you know, the, well, the genetics of that particular embryo. And that helps, that informs the parents in making a decision of which one to implant. I think the, the most bottom line thing is, you know, recently it's been shown that if you do this kind of uh, whole genome genotyping, you can increase the success rate, the probability that you'll actually get a successful pregnancy substantially. Mm-hmm. And so we think this is going to become just completely standard. Because what, what are you looking forward to, to predict wants- a to predict a, uh, uh, a more successful pregnancy? Is there some there's some markers in the genome? It's actually related to chromosome uh, structural abnormalities. So it turns out a lot of embryos that are produced have some uh, chromosomal abnormalities. And that prevents them from implanting. And, and, and that's and that's beyond just like uh, Down syndrome. You're talking you're talking more mild abnormalities, right? Yes, there are all kinds of structural rearrangements and all kinds of things that can happen. Um, it could also be 
you know, an extra copy of a chromosome. So all these things that happen, um, and if you have a, a, a very accurate way of determining what the chromosome structure is for the embryo, um, and then you rank order uh, using that information, it turns out that enhances the success rate quite a bit. Um, so that's kind of like a killer app yeah. in uh, IBM. Yeah. And is, um, is there a correlation between the likelihood of, so is there any kind of trade-off where like, oh, you know, the, they might uh, be less likely to be successful pregnancy, but they're like, you know, might be more intelligent or they might be more healthy when they grow up? Or is it, like, I mean, is, is there research on this or do you have just an intuition that, you know, a, a more successful pregnancy is likely to be a healthier baby and potentially adult? Right. So, the, the, the kind of uh, genotyping that's most common right now is this kind of cr- just kind of what we would call crude chromosome level uh, chromosome structure like uh, information. Um, and that, as far as we can tell, is all bad. So it's just it's just bad to have an extra copy of a chromosome. Yeah. It's bad to have a very big rearrangement in your chromosome. Um, and we were just surprised that the existing technology, which is used for this, is still crude. It still has a high error rate. And we didn't set out to actually explore this particular aspect of embryo screening. We we were mainly going to get like a, a really precise whole genome genotype, which from which you could predict things like uh, what's your heart attack risk or what's, you know, are you at high risk for breast cancer, things like that, much more related to the health of the child later on, not uh, the success of the pregnancy. It was by accident that we discovered that we actually, um, by probing the embryo DNA so much more precisely, we were able to make much better determinations about chromosome structure. Um, and that had this impact. But as far as we can tell, in answer to your question, these are just discreetly different things. Like one is, do you have any problems with the, just the gross structure of our chromosomes? Yes, no. Uh, yes is kind of always bad as far as we know. Secondly, can we look in and see like, okay, based on you know the specific structure of all the variants that you have, millions of variants in your genome, can we say like, oh, you're at high risk for breast cancer, or you're not at high risk for breast cancer. And that's a, that's a whole separate step in the process. Yeah, got it. Okay. So um, is there a, do you know anybody, any of any other countries? Because I'm wondering, you know, I'm worried, I'm worried that we're going to ban it in the West. Like, you know, I think it's a l- low probability, but I'm worried we're going to just ban, you know, everything or they're going to put regulations. Do you, do you know anything about India, uh, Europe? Oh. Like, is, can you talk about this a little bit, the laws and regulations here in a comparative perspective? Yeah, no, it's interesting. So it's very idiosyncratic. So uh, the British have this uh, council that have to approve all um, types of genetic screening. And so consequently, we don't work uh, on the more advanced stuff. We don't work with clinics in the UK. So is the, is, is, are, are they like pretty most, restrictive in, in what they'll allow? Yeah, it's not that they wouldn't approve us. It's just there's this lengthy process and we just haven't had the bandwidth to go through it. And no, no offense to my friends in the UK, but it's a small market. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just one of many markets. So um, that's the uh, an example of the most restrictive situation. In almost all other developed countries, you're allowed to do genetic screening of embryos. Um, they, you know, I, I think the, the the realization that this kind of highly polygenic screening, which can predict, you know, breast cancer risk or, um, you know, uh, hypothyroidism risk or something, that's only become possible in the last few years as, as the machine learning and the, the, the amount of genomic data available has exploded. Um, and so I think the reaction to it is not really so far. The, the regulatory systems haven't really quite figured out what, what they're going to do about this. I don't think they're going to ban it because most families really want it. You know, like if I say to you, like, 
Well, you have five embryos, and and increasingly, you, you have, we see situations where people have ten or twenty embryos. So you're going to discard some of them and anyway, right? So like the theory. Yeah, you're. you're right. So yeah, what makes sense? you're already making a choice. Do you want to make the choice on no information, or do you want to make the choice with lots of information? So very few parents uh, want to see this kind of thing outlawed, and very few IVF practitioners want to see it outlawed. And furthermore, once you show that it leads to higher success rates per cycle. Um, that's just the killer app for the industry. So um, yeah. it seems very unlikely it's going to get banned completely. That, that's that's a relief. You know, I saw another uh, factoid on your blog that I just I couldn't believe. He said uh, in Denmark, ten percent of children now are born through uh, IVF. Is is that right? Yeah. So let me run through the numbers for you here. So in Denmark, they have a single payer. They have a government healthcare system, right? And fertility is covered. So that that explains partially why. Um, you get a lot of this, but it's also because in these Nordic countries, right? Women, there's a lot of gender equality. Women can have their career. People get married late. It's, it's all the kind of Western, you know, uh, you know, the way things are going with fertility in the West. Um, and so, yeah, about 10%, if you go to a kindergarten in Denmark, 10% of the kids. That's that's incredible. But in the United States. That happened without, but in, but in developed countries, it's most developed countries is three to 5%. So it's still, you still can't go to a kindergarten without meeting. Yeah, that's amazing. So yeah, you have a 20 or 30, you know, uh, a kindergarten class of uh, people today, you know, one or two kids on average is going to be, uh, is going to be, yeah. that, that, that's incredible. Wow. I mean, that, that happened, like when I was, a, I mean, I remember I was a kid, I mean, I was born in a, uh, 1985. And if I heard somebody was born through, I, I mean, for the technology probably didn't even exist back then, but you know, it would have been a very, very strange thing, you know, and now, you know, five to 10%, depending on the country is a, uh, is, is having a sort of unnatural birth, you know, just the, you know, no, no judgment on that, but, you know, just different from the way, you know, birth has, you know, having children has worked all through human history. That, that's amazing. That's a revolution that, you know, few people have noticed. I think people still see it as sort of anomalous, but it's, uh, but, but it's not. So the oldest uh, U.S. IVF baby is forty. Okay, so yeah, and, they were uh, she actually older than me. Yeah, okay. <laughs> she actually, works for Genomic Prediction as a patient advocate. Oh, really? And um, and you know when IVF was first uh, developed, the you know one the last surviving scientist who was on the team that did the first IVF baby. This was in the UK, just a year or two before Liz, uh, our the, the first American baby was born, Elizabeth Carr. Um, so the last surviving guy from that team is one of the scientific advisors for our company, Genomic Prediction. And he has unbelievable stories about, he was called a murderer, Frankenstein doctor. Uh, they were accused of being Nazis, ushering in, you know, eugenics, all kinds of things. So they went from being pretty reviled and he had to actually hide because there were death threats against him and things like this. So he went from having death threats against him to being somewhat responsible for 10% of births in major yeah. countries. Right. So, um, so when I, when, when people come after us, I just laugh <laughs> because I say, you know, you're after me now, but in 30 years, people are going to realize that we made a huge contribution to human yeah. well-being. Well, it's strange because the, um, the, the abortion thing is so, um, is so, uh, you know, such a hot button issue, but people don't think about, you know, IVF and in vitro fertilization, you know, as much, although in theory, you think they might, you know, there was a, uh, there was a, um, a story, it was like a liberal, some liberal paper or uh, magazine, um, they were reporting on the, these, uh, 
pro-life bills in some some Republican state, and they were saying, "Oh, the Republican state, you know, they uh, they, they they put some restrictions on abortion, um, but like they didn't do anything about you know IVF and, and discarded embryos." So, aha, this you know, the, and like they got the guy to admit like that doesn't do anything about IVF, right? They're like, aha, this proves it's not about life; it's about you know controlling women's bodies, right? So they put the the left wing spin on it, um, and I was thinking, well. You know, they probably just didn't think about it. I mean, it's, it's not. I don't think it's that that rational. I mean, rationally, you might expect those sort of views to like people to have the same views on each. But but it, it seems like they don't. Is it just? I mean, part of it is probably just different developmental levels, right? I think you can have a sophisticated sort of uh, uh, divide here between you know second trimester, third trimester abortion, even six eight weeks, and the IVF. I mean, that's just that that is very early, right? Those are discarded when it's. We're talking about a tiny molecular machine. Yeah. It's like a hundred cells. A hundred cells. Okay, so. that's probably. Probably the difference, yeah. I, I think that's a that's a better understanding of that difference than uh, than sort of the. Uh, yeah. By the way, if I could make some projections, which are not speculative at all, so I think that I don't know if it was the U.S. number or the sort of Western countries number that for the first time the average woman is thirty when she first marries, and most people are not aware of this, but fertility decline in women starts typically in their early thirties, uh-huh. and it can become pretty pronounced by the time they're say 35, for example. Yeah. So the need for IVF is just going to skyrocket given the, you know, the cultural things that are going on right now. And so I wouldn't be surprised if say five years from now, you know, 10% of all births in every Western country, 10, 10% plus are through IVF. And if you, if you then segment down to say high SES couples, it could be much higher. It could be like twenty percent, twenty. Yeah, well, I'd like to see. I'd like to see that class breakdown now. Actually, have you seen any data on that? Because it's probably zero in many places, and so that must be. It must be ten, twenty percent in others. Yeah, I bet in Denmark, if you're in the highly educated class, instead of ten, it's twenty, and uh, you know, in or more, and uh, in the the working class, it's almost zero. Yeah. So. It's, uh, yeah. So so that's the way we're headed, and um, I think uh, the so the. Pers- I think, you know, given what we think will happen with the technology we've developed, we think it's going to be universally adopted. So eventually, you know, I think in five or 10 years, easily 10% of all babies born will have been genetically screened um, using this kind of technology. Yeah. Someone told me today, I, I, I didn't have time to look up the number, but you tell me if this sounds plausible, that in Sweden now, the age of last birth of a woman is 57. Does that sound plausible? The average age? The average the, last, the, the, last child someone last birth is that seems too high that seems too <laughs> high that seems, but you regularly read about women who are in their 40s and they have through ibf they have uh, a child so that that's not uncommon yeah. not super uncommon i mean of course it's a struggle for many women who are 40 and trying to have it. so but uh but 50, um, 50 i mean with the embryo uh, selection you can implant you can implant at 57 right so that that's plausible oh it, yeah i mean if you have money um if you free well first of all if you have foresight so like, you know, I think Apple famously provides as a, you know, employment benefit, embryo freezing, egg, free, egg freezing for its female employees. So if you had foresight and you froze uh, 30 eggs when you were, because when, when you're young, if you go through the hormone treatment, you can produce like unbelievable numbers of eggs, right? Mm-hmm. So, so imagine like some girl, some wom- young woman who works at Apple freezes 20 or 30 eggs and then doesn't get around to having a baby till she's 57. She finds a sperm, she gets married, she gets sperm from, from her husband, but then they have a surrogate mom carry the, 
uh, the embryo because it can be trans doesn't have to be transferred to the woman who originally made the egg, right? Mm. And so, if you have means, you 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 don't uh, you don't even mess up your wife's body. You you just uh, you just hire some surrogate mom to carry the uh, embryo. Yeah. And um, yeah, so that that's actually we to be totally frank. I'm in IVF. You actually see this kind of happening with high net worth people. Yeah. Where the the mother doesn't actually carry the the. the, the so yeah, I'm just I'm just looking this uh, this up. Mother's age, extreme age. The data drop represents the birth at any given calendar year. Five years. Uh, birth. So I think, yeah, I think in, in contrast, an age of birth for 50 year olds was attained only to blah, blah, blah. Okay. I'm looking this up and I'm going to actually, I, I think, yeah, whether this number for Sweden is actually right. Um, so somebody referenced me the paper. I'm just looking at the, looking at the paper. Um, and yeah, I'll post it in the links because I, I, whether this is true or not, <laughs> I want to know what I think our, our listeners will want to know. It's a question of how you define the, the, the thing. Like I, there's maybe some definition like, oh, in a given year, the oldest woman to give birth is 57. Yeah, I totally believe that. But um, no, he told me that the, uh, the uh, an average birth of fifty twice in the last nine uh, twice in the last nine five. Actually, it's it does look like uh, that's represent the highest page and can be okay. Yeah, I think this is wrong. I think this is the highest um, extreme age. Yeah, I think this is the highest. I think I was misinformed. Sorry for taking up so much time looking that okay. up. <laughs> but but still, still, by historical standards, you have women who are much much older. Like they would have been grandmothers in through most of historical times human history they would have been grandmothers but they're having their first baby or something right so yeah i think um yeah i mean steve it's um i've always found you know i i would rather talk to you know a highly intelligent person who's a generalist um and who has good cognitive habits um and who has genuine interest in things and rather than talk to a specialist on most things i, I think i would rather talk to you on most things you're an amateur uh you know you're an amateur sort of researcher on than most people who are experts so it was, it's been a fascinating conversation um i wanted to get to you know 10 things we got to china um and we got to um embryo selection and i think and i wanted to talk about i want to talk about there's like you know 10 other things on your blog and then i wanted to talk about the uh the attempted uh semi-successful cancellation uh of you at michigan state but um yeah let, let, let's save that let's save that for next time yeah I'd, lo- I'd love to come back or i'd love to also have you back on my show because i've uh, for your audience i've got i've had you on my show or i we recorded it but we haven't released it yet and uh so maybe we should do a regular thing where we talk to each other that yeah i think so I, I think we didn't even we didn't even scratch the surface here so uh Absolutely. Yeah. Is there, um, is there any place, uh, before I let you go, any place people can follow you or your blog, anything you want to plug right now? Oh, it's the usual boring stuff. My blog, my Twitter feed, and then my podcast. So all, all three exist. I, I can get you the links before you post this show. Okay. Yeah, we will. We will include those links. Okay. Great, Steve. It was great talking to you. And uh, until next time. Yeah, my pleasure. Take care. Yeah.